global pathways, stats, eligibility, and more. That's all coming up in another Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thank you for joining us again for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. It's our 50th EC pod, so I'm hoping everyone out there is raising a bat in celebration. I'm Daniel Bezwick, and with me tonight are the EC regulars and a special guest. Ooh. First, to the man known as Copernicus Cricket on Twitter, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? All right. Um, just uh, sitting here in isolation, uh, trying to keep busy. <laughs> Running out of things to do somewhat, um, but yes, good good to be back on the podcast, and now I'm going to have some editing work to do, so that's nice. Uh, yeah, well, uh, we've just gone through, what was it, three and a half, almost four hours of uh, Peter Della Pena content, uh, which I'm hoping everyone out there enjoyed, uh, and if you're one of our patrons, you got some exclusive content there. Our special guest tonight is one of our very first patrons at Emerging Cricket, but I'll get to him after I introduce our favourite left-arm orthodox spinner, Tim Cutler. Tim, how are you? I was a little bit worried there. I thought you were going to go through an uh, first section of a podcast and forget to introduce... I, I, would, never, I would never do that, Tim. Again? Um, never. No, <laughs> never. Um, similar but different to Nicholas, uh, I am two days out of um, isolation. Um, so after returning from New Zealand, I'm, I'm, it's been a, such a long time since we spoke on a podcast and trying to, to count the days. So uh, yeah, we were allowed to be released uh, to the general population for the last couple of days, but I've, I've, I've only used that. <laughs> Freed from captivity. Yeah, exactly. I've only used my new freedom to go downstairs to collect packages of uh, coffee being delivered and whatnot um, to sustain me. So yep, all good here. Uh, how are you, Daniel? Um, I, I heard your, your oven just blew up, so it's more money going down to uh, Uber Eats. Um, how are you going in general? Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, the local takeaway places around my house are getting a workout, and not just by me. But, yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting time, hasn't it, where we've just paid... I've just paid the first fortnight of rent without an income, which was... Uh, which did hurt a little bit. But trying to focus on the things I, I can control, a lot of projects that we have... Uh, in the offing to uh, make the most of the, the time that we have. Um, I'm not going to get bored anytime soon between that and uh, the entertainment available around the place. I'm sure you guys have seen Tiger King on Netflix and other things like that around. So there's always something to do. And um, yeah, trying to get out and, and doing exercises and doing uh, 5K runs and trying to beat my time every second day, which has kept me occupied. But uh do want to introduce the, the fourth member of tonight's show, uh, one of our first ever patrons. So first of all, thank you to him for that. Uh, a data analyst by day, but one of the most vocal associate fans by night and one of our first ever patrons, Andrew Nixon. Andrew, hello. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I, I should point out as well, I'm a fellow member of the uh, Left Arm Orthodox Spin uh, Club as well. Oh, oh, there we are. Well, oh, another one of them. Jeez. One of us. Oh. One of us. Gibble, gobble, one of us. <laughs> What, so I'm just thinking there are, there are a lot of good left arm orthodox spinners around. Andrew, I want to ask you what 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 do you think is so special about it? Is the fact that everyone's predominantly right handed and you're turning the ball away from the right hand batsman? It's a bit of a cheat code, even in emerging circles. Uh, yeah, I um, mean, you know, when I started watching uh, cricket, one of my favourite players was Phil Tufnell, <laughs> uh, so I sort of emulated him. Sorry, he's just a meme here. Uh, the bowling style, if not the lifestyle. Ah, I've got to just jump on top of that as well and, uh, and say it was funny that 
my favourite players were generally Australian. I remember watching the likes of Dean Jones and Mark Waugh as a kid and wanting them to go really well. But if it was a Tufnell or a Venkatapati Raju bowling to them, I was going for the bowler. <laughs> because it was like, oh, left-arm spinner, just, just like me. So, yeah. So, no, Tuff was, was great. Good attacking pace and, yeah. Great fielder as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lesson on what not to do in uh, international fielding, it must be said. Um, you did briefly discuss, you know, your introductions to cricket there, Nixon, but we know that you're a, a big associate cricket fan. Um, how did you get into the, the associate game? Uh, we're all from big three countries here on, on this podcast, so I think a lot of people are, are quite perplexed as to why we're so into it what what brought you into associate cricket um it sort of started in uh 2000 and i, you know, I was always obviously aware that scotland ireland and the netherlands had played cricket because they'd been in world cup or were close by to me um when i it was the first time i got um the wisdom almanac sort of reading through that and i came to the cricket around the world section and there was all these tales of cricket in sort of unlikely places um that i never even knew played cricket and it so it became a bit of a, a bit of an obsession for me, and uh, yeah, it sort of, sort of progressed from there. And eventually, when I realised that you know they weren't really getting a fair go, um, I sort of started. Well, I, maybe I could do something about it, and sort of started writing about it first on my own blog, and then eventually with Cricket Europe. And now things have come full circle, and I've actually written for Wisden, which is a which is very strange. So, from that reading and 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 your time since then, what what are some of your favourite associate cricket? Or emerging cricket stories. Oh, um, <laughs> favourites uh, an odd word. I mean, there's, it's been a sort of uh, you know twenty years of um, getting annoyed at stuff more, more than <laughs> more than having favourite stories. Uh, you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, I like I like a good rant, as anybody who follows me on Twitter or who listens to my previous podcast knows. Oh, really? I never would have known. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Please tell us how you feel because you leave us really in the dark with uh, <laughs> how you you honestly think about things. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the story of Afghanistan's rise is probably the the best thing that I think that's happened in in cricket, full stop, in the last twenty years. So um, that's probably the best thing that's sort of happened while I've been covering uh, uh, associate cricket, uh, and obviously Ireland climbing up the rankings as well. Obviously, they were they were a lot further ahead from than Afghanistan were in the, when I started. Afghanistan were I think it only just started playing when I started following associate cricket. Um, you know, there's been obviously moments as well that I've seen. I saw excellent Freddie Clocker innings in a 2020 match at um, Hove, uh, Sussex home ground in the 2013 T20 qualifier. He scored 120 odd, I think, which I think there's still only been about five or six higher scores in full status internationals. Um, that sort of will live long, long in the memory. Um, it's probably the sort of best innings I've seen uh, in the t- in the time I've been covering associate cricket. So you've talked about some of uh, the the favourite stories that you've seen over the years. There's a lot of great moments in associate uh, and I guess emerging cricket history. Um, what are some of the uh, historical stories that you think are, are really important and that maybe people should um, should know a bit more about over the you know, hundred plus years of international cricket being held? The one that sort of gets overlooked by a lot of people who don't follow emerging cricket as as closely as is the entire story of cricket in the US before the First World War, mm. how high a standard it was to the extent that they were probably the US were probably the third best side in the world at one point. Um, and just and the you know the players who came out of that, so obviously Bart King, uh, George Patterson, uh, lots of other sort of you know great names who came out of that era 
who I think had the USA been able to play test cricket would have been you know, spoken of in, in terms where you're know, used for people like WG Grace and you know, Don Bradman and you know, all the greats of the past. Can you expand on that one a little bit? I've done a little bit of reading, but there might be a lot of people listening here about the story of, of what happened to US cricket around the beginnings of the, of the ICC. Yeah, so um, US cricket at that time, as I say, was a very high standard. They toured England, regularly beating county sides. This is the Philadelphia team, which was essentially the uh, de facto US national team. It was so strong. And at the time when the ICC formed, it was the Imperial Cricket Conference. Um, and you basically had to be part of the British Empire to be to be involved. So starting with just England, Australia and South Africa, uh, USA prevented from from joining because obviously they were you know they'd been independent for a long time at that point. But you know, USA carried on for a, a sort of a few years after that and went into a bit of a decline after the First World War. But at, at one point it was a very high standard there. It's a big sort of what if you know, what if they had been able to join the ICC? Would the US have uh, still declined, or would they have actually had a bit of an impetus to? Uh, spread the game uh, further afield in the US. It was very, you, you look at the time as well, baseball hadn't quite spread as wide as it as it is now as well. Could it have uh, competed with baseball in maybe the west of the country where there was, at the time, very little baseball? Yeah, it's always one of those things you just get your mind racing, doesn't it, of the potential of, of the game if it had been able to to grow and prosper within in the US. But I think it was always going to be up for a fight, wasn't it, against a, a homegrown sport versus uh, one of the more or less represented the British Empire. Uh, yeah, and a lot of that's sort of why it, why it declined. You know, um, and in addition as well, there's a, a baseball historian called John Thorne, who I heard an interview with him quite recently. He was talking about how, it, obviously it was around the Civil War where cricket sort of declined, declined outside of Philadelphia and basically um, it was easier to play baseball during your know, breaks in the battle and, and whatnot. Also um, England actually supported the South in the Civil War <laughs> so after the Civil War it was um, it, it was oh well that's the the game that the uh, the, the uh, Confederate States you know, would have played because they were supported by England so let's not play this English game because they're they're our enemies. Um, so there was a little bit of that. Um, you know, a lot of early baseball clubs did start out as offshoots of cricket clubs, and you know, cricket grounds sort of became baseball grounds, or there was shared facilities over the years. You know, a lot, of, and some players did uh, did play play both. A, a guy called George Wright, who is the only person to play Major League Baseball and first class cricket, he played sort of two games uh, for the U.S. Uh, first class games for the U.S. after his. Major League Baseball career finished, uh, a player from the 19th century. Him and his brother also played for the US national side, uh, as did his uh, father, actually, who played in the very first match of all back in 1844. It is fascinating, though. Like You do look at, at how the world was formed in, in times like that, and it's only taken... And maybe it's just the recency bias talking now, but in, in 2020, we're, we're looking at South America and North America as areas where the game is trying to develop and trying to rebirth uh, a little bit. It, it makes you wonder now what, what the future holds in associate cricket now because I, I think people do see the opportunities for uh, international cricket and we look at, say, status. Um, maybe status is, is the way forward. And now that 
every every single international ICC member has status. Do you think is status one way that we, we could see this game open up across the world? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, just from the point of view as well that a lot of um, government funding for sport can be based on rankings. Uh, I know at one point Canada had their sort of uh, government funding uh, reduced because they weren't on the official rankings. Uh, so the, the general sort of perception was, well, your sport obviously doesn't want you. So why should we? Why, why should we pay for you? And I think there's other sports as well where they've had trouble getting funding because cricket, you know, not just isn't in the Olympics, which will be the biggest game changer of all, but because you know they're not on that official rankings and you know they can't actually point to, well, this is how good we are. You know, they can only point to. Well, we play this World Cup qualifying tournament every four years, um, and that and that was it. But now they have regular internationals. They can show. Well, look, we're currently ranked fortieth in the world. Um, you know, with a bit of money, maybe we can you know start competing, climb into that top twenty, and you know start reaching towards T uh, Twenty World Cups and such. And it, I think it it helps it helps sell the game to to governments. It helps raise awareness uh, outside of the country. So just. Taking maybe a step back for our listeners who are, you know, maybe just a bit more, uh, you know, casually involved in cricket and not totally up to date on all the different, you know, administrative terms. What exactly do we mean by status, and you know, how do teams get it, and you know, how what what does it actually change for teams? Oh, that's no, that's a question. <laughs> so obviously, there's you know, there's three commonly referred to forms of international cricket. There's actually a fourth as well, which I'll get to in a second. There's obviously test status. Uh, your five-day internationals, ODIs, uh, currently 50 overs. They have had all sorts of other formats in the past. Um, and then T20I status. The three sort of commonly referred to that are commonly referred to as being international cricket. Um, the ICC actually sanctioned a fourth form of international cricket, which is essentially other international cricket, which is basically anything that's in an ICC event that isn't already covered by the first three. So that would be the Intercontinental Cup, 50 over qualifiers, and then 20 you know, 20 or 20 qualifiers previous to universal status. Uh, so that's the sort of official, four official status categories, and there's a whole host of unofficial matches which would involve non-ICC members, things played outside of ICC tournaments, uh, and and that sort of stuff. And then at domestic level, you've got first class uh, for multi-day cricket, list A for one-day cricket, and list A 2020 for 2020 cricket, obviously. As, as for how you get it, um, it's... Uh, that's the uh, sort of uh, the big sort of question. Of, currently, ODI status is done technically on merit, where you qualify for it. Although the, it currently appears that there's no way for full members to lose ODI status, uh, only associates seem to be able to lose ODI status. Uh, test status, and uh, which currently is coupled with full membership, but there's been talk that that might change. Although there's been talk that that might change for almost as long as I've been writing about um, associate cricket. I've often described the pathway to getting that as like that bit at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, <laughs> where you've gone through this big adventure and now you've got the three challenges um, to, to go through. Jehovah starts with an I. <laughs> yeah. ICC certainly does. Uh, so it has to help people get tested. I don't think anybody really knows. I think it's done in a bit of a haphazard way, no matter how many times the ICC say there's a, a clear pathway. There really isn't a, a clear pathway for a lot of these teams. And, and just as, as a follow-up question, Andrew, I reckon at this point now, and we posed this to, to Peter Delapena last week as well, or sorry, two weeks ago, where... Now the idea of full membership isn't exactly the the goal for a lot of these associate members now because we have seen 
Ireland and Afghanistan actually struggle in their new framework. Ireland's year last year was was a bit of a nightmare year for them, uh, both on and off the field. Would the idea of full membership changing not to allow test uh, status change that perception by associate members who at this point now might not exactly strive for full membership at the moment because we talked to Scotland's and we talked to, to people from the Netherlands, you know, test test playing or at least playing test cricket isn't exactly top of mind or top of the to-do list for for, for them and for a lot of other countries as well. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right there. The, a lot of people will look at how Ireland have struggled financially, how how expensive test matches are to, to stage. And, you know, there's a whole other conversation we could have about it. Do your do test matches have to be that expensive? I think there's an estimate that Ireland lost, I think, a million euros on that first test match against Pakistan or something like something in those lines. So there's going to be a lot of sort of think, oh God, I'm not really sure who wants to play test matches. I think there will be some associates that do. You know, Nepal is the is the obvious one. I think that will want to play test matches down the line. Obviously, they had that first class match against the MCC, so they obviously still take multi day cricket very seriously, but. Yeah, the way the game is going, how test matches are almost becoming less important in the face of uh, your T Twenty leagues. Um, your associates are going to be steered away from wanting to play a test matches. I think they still might want full membership to get that extra extra funding. Although your know, India will always take their their slice, but your test your playing test matches is is an expensive business, and it's it's going to be a, a brave associate who wants to take that leap at the moment. And then there's the question of a four-day test matches and whether or not that would be a, a leveler or an you know a way to entice new countries coming in, perhaps. Um, it's a possibility. You know, it's obviously going to be cheaper. It's, it's one less day to have a book a facility for. It's one less day to pay you know staff for. It's one less day to pay players for. One less day in the hotel. Um, you know, you all it all adds up, and it's your know, four-day tests. I'm not too fussed about them. You know, as as we'll, so we we may cover later. The you know the idea that tests have always been five days is a is a myth. Uh, you know, they, they were playing four-day tests as recently as the late seventies, and it's a form of test cricket. It's still four days. It's still a test match for me, for me if you can sort out the over rates. And to be fair, associates usually are better at over rates than full members are. Oh, it seems yeah. that when you become a full member, you start bowling slowly. <laughs> Ireland don't seem to have figured that out yet. <laughs> but Yeah, well, no, because I went to the um, Intercontinental Cup game in, uh, in Dublin uh, against the Netherlands and they got through over 100 overs in the day and that was with two rain delays. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you think, why, why can't a test team get through 90 in a, a summer's day in Australia? It's, it's ridiculous. This might be a, a shortish question with a long answer, Andrew, but it gets me thinking as you're talking about test matches and, again, recency bias of people saying, well, you know, well, test matches have always been five days since I've been watching it, i.e. in the last 10 years or so. But it gets me thinking about people's approach to a World Cup and competitive matches. Is it similar to the way that they talk about five-day tests or four-day tests because it's something different to what they know and they just don't want something different rather than actually willing to go beyond the surface and I look up that a five-day test has not always been that way and actually those five those end of fifth day finishes that you would lose not by having four-day tests would still happen if you got the requisite number of overs in 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 four days and also oh I've just seen this World Cup with these teams and I keep being shown the same same teams over and over why would I want to change this just gets me thinking that it's cricket's not very good at celebrating its diversity or its rich past 
I just it's kind of a as I said it's a wifty waspy uh, question with probably a long answer. But do you get a feeling for for, for cricket's problem with this about about change and growth? Uh, yeah, I mean, cricket is a very uh, very conservative sport in 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 many ways, and you know for those of us who have a more sort of liberal or left wing persuasion, that it can be a bit um, sort of annoying that it doesn't celebrate that diversity. And that your World Cups, I think, are supposed to be a celebration of the diversity of a sport. Uh, you know, a lot of other sports do that so so well. Um, you know, rugby, rugby union, and rugby league uh, both sort of do that through their World Cups these days, and cricket just doesn't seem to want. It just seems to be stuck in the past and relying on the same teams playing again and again and again. But you know, I think eventually people will get bored of that. Um, you know, you already seen people starting to question, you know, why do England and Australia play so much? Obviously, previously it was India and Sri Lanka. England play Australia more than India play Sri Lanka now. I'm I'm bored. I'm I've, I've actually got bored of the Ashes. Which you know, it's, it's for a you know a long time cricket fan is is a strange thing to say. It's not just because England lost the last series, <laughs> um, but it is it is genuinely just not holding as much interest for me as it used to. Um, and part of that is because I, I think I have been exposed to the sort of diversity of cricket and. How and the sort of cutthroat nature of of associate cricket. How there's there's something to play for all the time. Whereas international cricket is still it's still stayed in that sort of nineteenth century model of tours and and series and whatnot. And I think that's become a bit of an anachronism these days. I think it made sense in the past, even even up until maybe the eighties, because in the days when there was no well, no TV or no TV from overseas, the only way to see these players was during the tour. You know, the only way you, you you guys in Australia would have seen England players was when the England came over to tour, or same with the West Indies. But now you you see that we see these players all the time on in the T Twenty franchise league. You know, Chris Gale probably plays for your local team because he plays for everybody. Imagine Chris Gale playing for the Lions, Bez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas obviously going back to the sixties and seventies, you'd you'd only see Garfield Sobers when the West Indies came to tour. So it, you know the world's changed, but sort of international cricket still sort of stuck in that old fashioned way of doing things where you have. A small number of teams always touring each other. Well, I find like a lot of these things seem to be related to each other. And you know, going back to the you know, what if Canada or the US got test status? Do you do you think that part of the you know conservatism of cricket is is sort of a self reinforcing cycle in a way that you know they didn't let in these non Commonwealth countries and therefore it has stayed so conservative? You know, if if they had had a bit of a you know different perspective on the game from a strong Argentina or USA. That might have uh, balanced out some of the you know, inherent colonial overtones of the sport. Well, I mean, definitely. You, know, you only need to look at how you know, the South Africa situation, how it didn't come about that they were being kicked out of international cricket until they started getting those voices from you know, the West Indies and India, you know, from the non-white countries. That was when they started talking about, you know, well, let's get rid of South Africa because of apartheid. And the same would apply apply here as well. Had they had that you know, voice from the US or from Argentina or from you know, further afield, obviously you know, there was cricket a lot in continental Europe at the, in the early 20th century as well, in the Netherlands and Denmark and Belgium. It may have given them a, I mean, first, a non-English viewpoint on, on the world and you know, a, a more diverse viewpoint. You know, I'm a great believer that there is strength in diversity if you have those diverse opinions, you get more done. You don't, you know, stay stuck in that rut of uh, always, you know, being the same and never changing. Huh. So that leads me to to the next question that I want to ask. And and given the poor flexibility of, of the ICC and the and the power brokers in the international game, we we talk about 
stats and last year one of the big stories that broke in the emerging world was this stats gate or this idea of of Marley being bowled out for six in an international women's t20 match and a lot of these statisticians and record keepers up in arms about their precious record books being uh, tarnished by such a such an outlier of a result. But, but the question I want to ask is, is it that idea, the idea of, of the game not being flexible in some ways, one, it makes it almost inaccessible for, for new people to get involved, but for people to then get on their on their statistical high horses and you know we we work in in data analysis the pair of us Andrew and we find it absurd that a lot of people get up in arms about a lot of this stuff is it is it important for people to to contextualize a lot of these records and to understand where they where they've come from uh, yeah you know people people aren't as stupid as some of these statisticians seem to think that they are um you know people people know People are capable of putting things into a appropriate context. Exactly. Yeah. Your statistics are meaningless without context. I mean, I would say that because you're know, giving context to statistics is my job. <laughs> um, but you need that context, and people can understand it. People already do this thing. These things anyway you know, they'll look at you'll compare Warren and Murali and you know let's ignore matches against Zimbabwe and Bangladesh because Zimbabwe and Bangladesh weren't that good at that time uh you know people have always done stuff like that and giving you know that wider content you know when you're actually sort of analyzing sort of statistics as well you want a coherent statistical record and you know in test cricket and ODI cricket you don't have that as well as all the variants to test cricket you mentioned ODIs have been played over you know 40 overs 45 overs 50 overs 55 overs and 60 overs you know whites and Coloured clothing. They've been played with red balls and white balls. Uh, super subs. Yeah, super subs. Power plays. Um, there's been some ODIs with eight ball overs as well. Two new balls. Yeah, you know, there's so many variants to ODI. There is no statistically coherent record. The only form where there is a statistically coherent record is taking twenty. And even even within that, there's been a little bit of experimentation. So you know, the idea that there is that statistically coherent record that you can create sort of sensible stats from is 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 a bit of a myth. And in any case, actual cricket teams do not use batting average. They do not use bowling average. They don't use strike rate. They use the more advanced analytics that you know, companies like CrickViz provide. They, you know, the advanced analytics do take context of a, of a match and of a particular moment in a match into account. So, yeah, I think to, you know, your traditional statisticians are just... You know, they just don't like how things are changing. You know, it's like um, Doctor Who fans complaining that the Doctor's now played by a woman. You know, it's um, you know, move with the times. Yeah, but, but to bring to bring it back, you're right, and you know, I think a lot of people, yeah, as you say, Andrew, get a bit caught up in in a lot of these statistical battles within people. But at the same time, you know, the, the smart people already contextualise a lot of these records. You, you got to remember, like, not every game of cricket is played at Lords in July on a 17 degree day uh, when the wicket's flat and it hasn't been raining in two weeks. You know, the, the, the beauty of the sport is is that there are so many different factors and variables when it comes to just the, you know, the conditions of, of the game. Uh, yeah, and, and to, bring, to bring it back, you know, cricket is played in a lot of different places and yeah as we said the conditions are different in a lot of these places you, you have results uh, and pitches more conducive to spin in, in say the subcontinent generally and we see the ball swing around a little bit more in in the UK Australia can be a little bit of a mix of of a few different things but for a lot of these regions now where we are seeing development I think we're seeing a good level of development in, in parts of Europe you know and that that's partly due to the, the context of the world at the moment where we have a lot of people from um, 
the subcontinent in the Middle East actually emigrating into parts of Europe where we're seeing a bit of a resurgence in South America. We're also seeing Southeast Asia become a little bit of a hotbed for de- developing um, talent as we saw you know, Nepal be uh, put away by the likes of, of Singapore in that recent you know, T20 World Cup qualifier. Where do you see, you know, the global pathways that the ICC have put in in terms of their their next cycle and, and schedule? Because we were supposed to have two World Cups basically a year apart, and now that's been thrown into jeopardy with the with the current situation. Um, how do you see the the new structure in the international game working? Do you think it's it's shrinking the opportunities for for some of those those countries? Because we do see, in in some ways, you know, the, the countries with ODI and Test status still ruling the roost here. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, your T Twenty status has been opened up, um, uh, but yeah, that fifty over pathway, um, how it's so restrictive now. I think you could you know, have more regional fifty over tournaments would be, would be uh, your know, nice as a sort of a feeder into that. I think they're currently talking about using the T20I rankings as qualifying for the 50-over pathway, which seems a very strange way to do it. You know, the rankings are far from perfect, but the ICC, or you know, they did do their study on whether the rankings would are suitable for qualification, uh, and that study found that they were. The fact that that study was done by the same guy who, who devised the rankings, I'm sure, had absolutely no bearing on that uh, conclusion. <laughs> um, that 50-over pathway, I'm not too... At the you know, at that top level, I think it's as it's as good as it's ever been. Um, whether it will stay like this, you know, the actual pathway to the World Cup has changed more times in the last twenty years than the format of the World Cup, which so sort of probably tells you something. Uh, so, will this stay? Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Um, I I would like to see uh, full members involved more in pathway events. You know, I I would like to see you know, a very limited amount of teams automatically qualify for tournaments. Obviously, they essentially are in the in the fifty over format now. Uh, they are in that um, you know, ODI Super League, uh, which is essentially a qualifier for the World Cup. But obviously, they have a a big advantage. I'd I'd like to see the pathway eventually as it develops. I'd like to see more more regional tournaments feeding directly into World Cups, as we see in see in other sports, with maybe a repercharge for the best qualifiers from best non qualifiers from each region. Uh, that I think would work better with uh, 2020 cricket at the moment. I think that working for ODI cricket is probably a, a fair fair way off. You may have to start looking at maybe combining some of the regions uh, to so that you have so a bit more competitiveness. Uh, you could probably combine maybe um, East Asia Pacific with um, uh, probably Africa and then uh, Europe with uh, Americas to get a sort of more competitive uh, qualifying system out, out of that. The Atlantic Division of International Emerging Cricket. It's not the worst idea, actually. Well, one of the things that, um, you know, especially in the sort of mid-2000s uh, with, I think it was Bob Woolmer was doing a lot of work with these pathways and, you know, setting up the Intercontinental Cup and 16 teams in a World Cup. And it, it seemed like, a you know, an optimistic time. And the ICC was, you know, genuinely trying to, to expand. And more recently, they've they've gone backwards, I would say, and they've sort of let go of some of that expansionary, uh, you know, dream. Do you have any sort of theories on, you know, what's happened and maybe why they've gone gone that way instead of you know continuing on the on the the upswing um it's a, it's a good question you know, there's there were sort of you know some people around the time who were a bit um a bit concerned at some of the some of the smaller sort of nations joining the ICC or you know, are they is there any real point in supporting them and by smaller I mean the really small like you know the Falkland Islands for example or the Isle of 
the Isle of Man. Um, you know, is there really any point in in these countries, or, or not even countries, your territories, being involved in international cricket? Are they really going to go anywhere? And you know, I think I have a little bit of sympathy for that for that viewpoint. Not not too much, but a little bit. And that's when it sort of you know, shut up shop, and they started getting a bit stricter on membership requirements. That, you know, as um, I think I might have tweeted at the time, I think the USA are now the uh, I think the fifth or six hundred and fifth member of the ITC. Um, you know, they've got a lot stricter at you know kicking teams out you know and obviously not just the USA over the over recent years has been um you know Tonga um uh, who else has there been um yeah Croatia and Morocco but yeah there's been a lot of uh you know Cuba is one of the other ones that's been kicked out in recent years um so they've got a lot stricter I think on those on those uh, membership criteria and there's a lot of actually current associate members who don't fit the associate member requirements so I think there could be at some point a cull on the way especially around some of those smaller especially you know, the territories of other countries like your know, Gibraltar or the Cook Islands as well as well as the, you know those ones I've already mentioned that you know it could be for the chopping block in upcoming years um as for where the the sort of I, the big turning point i think was that 2007 world cup when um your know, island you know obviously and and to a less extent bangladesh sort of upset the apple cart and got through to that super eight stage and then the you know, the big money india pakistan game between became ireland against bangladesh and that i think put a lot of people off in in, in cricket and a lot of that was a result of the format of that tournament, you know, have that gone straight to quarterfinals, you probably wouldn't have had the same reaction as, as as we did have. But you know, since then, there's been a, you know, there's been the, you know, obviously the development team have always done a good job at, at putting in the, those pathways. But even then, you know, the ICC stopped funding the development teams as as much as they used to, and you know, took sort of control centrally of the of the pathways. You know, the ICC Europe events there used to be at one point they were running into sort of eleven or twelve ICC events. I see Europe events a year, and you know now there's barely eleven regional events across you know five regions combined each year. Well, I was going to say so from that lens, looking through in the past when there was a lot more cricket being played regionally, everything from World Cricket League Division Eight upwards, and I guess back then it was sort of pre T Twenty World Cup qualifiers. So I guess that's got to be balanced next to each other and also the advent and then uh, withdrawing of international first class cricket what what should be done if you've if you've got the power and let's not talk too much about funding that has been pulled away from the from the associates so what do you think in a perfect world moving forward should be there for the the development of cricket from those smaller associates the the old affiliates who as you said yourself are probably struggling to fulfill the the associate criteria now but uh, what's a perfect world in your point of view um, i mean in terms of pathways i think add more teams into the current pathways in in, in both formats if they want to play you know i'm not going to say that every team has to play 50 over cricket if they want to play 50 over cricket then they should be able to if they want to play if they don't they shouldn't have to um get in some more regional tournaments in 50 over cricket um i think you know the current tiered way is not always the best way i prefer the other what they've done for the t20 world cup uh, where you've got the sub-regionals leading into regionals leading into into global events um as i say i would i would prefer to see the full members get involved in those regional qualifiers in t20 cricket um further down the line i'd like to see more regional sort of tournaments in the line of the asia cup as well um, I think you could probably have a, a, a decent tournament in the in Europe and a decent tournament in the Americas, um, and probably a decent tournament in Africa as well. East Asia Pacific's probably a bit way off being able to be, to do a, a tournament like that at the moment. So yeah, I'd like to see more tournaments like that. Um, you know, first class international cricket. I, you know, I I miss the Intercontinental Cup. 
you know, um, it's, it's 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 long lamented for for me, even though it's only been gone a couple of years now. Um, you know, let's bring that back if if teams want to play it. It doesn't necessarily have to be you know, the top. It always used to be these teams with ODI status. I don't think it necessarily has to be those teams. It, it, you know, it can be it can be uh, you know, let's, you know, get six teams who want to play and play a you know, a league over two or three years. You know, and you know, you're funded centrally by the ICC, and and you know, let's get, you know, get it out there, get people, get players some experience of first class cricket. You know, the pathway to Test cricket, I think, is the idea of it. I don't think is necessarily the, the way to go because I don't think associates want to play Test cricket for for reasons we discussed earlier. But there's, I think it's. You know, bring back that pathway for the Intercontinental Cup, I say. One thing that we have seen the international uh, sports governing body, uh, the ICC, do recently is uh, relax the eligibility laws a little bit, uh, which has created new opportunities. And opportunities is, is a loose term, but, but now we have a situation from the ICC where it only takes three years residency in some places just to, just to qualify to play international cricket in, in, in a different land. Where do you stand on, on all of this? And what do you think needs to be done for, for some fairness? Because we, we do see some people, you know, fans from some countries, and I don't want to name names, but they talk about the idea of passport players and things like that. And there are some legitimate concerns in all of that. But where do we find the happy balance between eligibility and and having people available to play for for different countries who have now uh, for people who have now lived in a, in a certain country, as opposed to nurturing homegrown talent, because it, it does seem an important thing to achieve is, is to find a happy medium. Yeah, I mean, I've always had a relatively relaxed view on on, on eligibility. Um, the ch- recent changes, though, I think, and the sort of context around you know, the USA League it brought up sort of some. Some concerns. Um, I think the the concerns around are around that residential rule. I think if you're born in a country or you're a citizen of a country, you you, know, you should be able to play for that country, no questions asked. But when it comes to the residential rule, I think that's where it, the the loopholes the loopholes can lie. And previously, people had always said, "Oh, well, what's to stop associates? You know, just buying a load of players from another country and having them fulfil the residential criteria." The, the, what was stopping that was that associates were terribly funded and couldn't afford to do that. <laughs> But now you've got a situation in the in the US and perhaps in the UAE, uh, given recent developments there, where maybe actually they could do that. And you know, we don't want a situation, especially with only a three-year residential period, where you know, in you know, in five years' time, the USA national team is just a bunch of washed-up four-member players. Um, so I think it's that residential criteria that needs to be looked at. I don't think you can get rid of it, um, partially, partly because there's about. I think a dozen ICC members that aren't technically sovereign nations and therefore don't have access to the nationality criteria. England being one of them. You know, if you get rid of residential residential qualification, then John T. Jenner becomes ineligible to play for Jersey. You know, someone who's come up through their youth ranks and spent almost his entire life in Jersey would be ineligible to play for Jersey. So obviously, you know, that getting rid of it completely is, is is out of the question. I think where where you can make the change is if players either move as adults or move to a country having had first-class playing experience in another country, should their residential qualification only be three years or should it be longer? Should it be your five years, even seven years in, in some cases? Um, I think if you move as a kid, you're, you're, you're essentially a product of that of that country's system. You, you have learned your cricket in that country. And I know you never really stop learning, even when you're a professional, but you have, you're have a product of that country's system if you've moved as a child. But when you've moved as an adult, you're not a product of that country's system. And I think there should be a longer eligibility, longer residential eligibility period for those players 
to to get that sort of balance between your development and having a good national team. Well, I know there were some rules previously around, well, uh, players who, who hadn't lived, I think it was seven years, uh, was one of the criteria, but also they had some rules around having to play in, in the domestic tournament. And that uh, supposedly, the reason for that being changed was that um, the, the Philippines tried to get some uh, so-called passport players and eventually the ICC tried to stop them and the Philippines appealed and, and that sort of paved the way for the, the new system. Uh, FIFA has a, uh, a structure where they go based on where you first played your football and mostly if you've played under-19s for a country, you, you, you can't play for another country without uh, a lot of difficulty. So do you think you could, would you see cricket going somewhere more along those lines? I think that's a possibility. FIFA restricts passport players to players who uh, were either born there in the country or have a parent or a grandparent born in that country or who are resident in that country, obviously. Uh, well, you can also qualify by residence. Uh, but so, you know, that is it. That is a possibility. You know, the, you know, the, the one that always sort of comes up in a European context is, the, uh, is Italy, which has very loose sort of you know, nationality by um, ancestry then. Uh, compared with other countries, you know, the UK can only pass down uh, nationality you know, one generation, whereas in Italy it's sort of like you know, as many generations that you can trace back. Well, obviously, you then get the problem with um, your shared nationality. Obviously, you know, I think it's uh, about 10 ICC members share British nationality. You know, obviously, England, Scotland, Jersey, and Ireland, Man, Guernsey, and so on, on all the overseas territories. So you'd have to work, find a way to work around that as well so that it's, it's, it's fair for everybody. But um, in terms of the, you know, the case of the, you know, the guys from the Philippines, you know, those development criteria didn't apply consistently. They didn't apply at all to full members, for example. They didn't apply in certain tournaments. So I think it was more a case of you have these rules. I mean, we can see that those rules are there for a reason, but they're not actually applied consistently. So if you if that was to go to court, it probably wouldn't have uh, held up. Had those development criteria applied across the board, then maybe they could have stayed in place. But, you know, I mean, you could argue, would England always fit the development criteria? Um, which is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, a good question. You know, Owen Morgan certainly wouldn't fulfill the <laughs> development criteria in England because he previously played for another country. So, um, you, know, you, 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 you know, there's that question around the development criteria as well. I think that you know, they, they stopped players playing that perhaps it, they shouldn't have um, and sometimes let in players that they probably shouldn't have as well. They were very easily, you know, sort of dealt with as well. You know, there was one that you just had to do 100 days cricket work, you know, and if you were a professional critic from another country, you could just, you know, go have a nice, you know, three-month holiday in a place during the off-season and and do a bit of, you know, pretend development work and you, you signed off and you, you, it's done. So I don't think they, 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 they always worked perfectly. They were a very sort of blunt instrument and I don't think they actually, they had a laudable goal, but I don't think they ever really achieved it well and it, it does all connect and you know the maybe the cultural conservatism of uh, of cricket isn't quite compatible with today's uh, you know globalized multicultural world and mm-hmm. you know i think i always think of you know in that philippines situation trying to tell a guy like john o'hill that you know he's not allowed to represent his mother's country and you know how proud he is to be playing for the philippines and yeah. you know that's his heritage and to say oh well you know you, you haven't played enough days of cricket in the philippines you're not allowed to like it, it's it's kind of ridiculous really when you think about it yeah you're telling someone who's a citizen of a country that well you're not really a citizen of that country you're not really part of that country you don't really belong to it. You think know, that's that that can almost be offensive to to some people and to a lot of people. And you know, it's a very difficult sort of avenue to go down to say, well, yes, you're a citizen, but you're not like a, a normal citizen of that country, and we want, we we don't want you playing international cricket for them. It's a difficult thing to to try and 
impose and in, in, in some contexts is almost certainly illegal. Let's look at some uh, more light-hearted uh, stuff here now and Andrew as a data analyst I'm sure you're a trivia boffin as well is there a favorite piece of uh, associate member trivia that you might have up your sleeve uh, well my current obsession is players who have been playing for a long time um there's the Argentina guy whose name escapes me at the moment who's been playing since 1994 first played in the 1994 ICC trophy and played a t20i last year wow uh and I'm kicking myself that I can't remember his name off the top of my head. And then there's, you know, the I think the Bermuda guy. Oh, his name's gone as well, but you know who he is. He played in the... Malachi Jones? No, no, the older guy. Oh, Tucker. Janeiro Tucker, yeah. Yeah, Janeiro Tucker, who played in the 1997 ICC Trophy against Tim David's dad <laughs> um, and played in the World T20 qualifier last year against Tim David. That is that is outstanding. There, there wouldn't be too many players who can say that. No. No. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my current sort of obsession. And I, was, I went through trying to find who'd played in the most consecutive decades a while ago. I think we found an Argentina player who'd played in, I think, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. Wow. That was, that was, that was sort of one of the ones I got. That seems to be the record uh, that I've managed to sort of dig out. Um, it seems to be quite a lot in associate cricket. You know, there's the um, guy who played for Portugal I think Akbar Saeed, I think his name was, who played right up until he was, I think, 67 for Portugal. Oh. He was actually born in, in Mozambique, but he was, yeah, I think he was so old, he counted as being born in Portugal because Mozambique was still a Portuguese colony when he was born. So, yeah, he, he was, you know, he, he almost was Portuguese cricket for, for a long time. He, I mean, I think he made his debut in, when he was in his 50s and, <laughs> and managed to get a 17-year career out of it. Hmm. Um, so... Um, which is quite quite remarkable as well. You know, some players retire in the late thirties after a seventeen year international career. Now, Frank Nisabuga from uh, from Uganda. He's up there. Yeah, no, he played ninety seven ICC Trophy as well. Uh, so yeah, he's on yeah nineties, two thousands, two thousand and tens, and you know, well, if there's ever going to be any cricket in the twenty twenties, now now. And he's not even 40 yet. Yeah. So he's he's a chance for a, a few more decades yet. Yeah, it makes you sick. I'm, I'm older than Frank Nisabuga and he's been playing international cricket for 23 years. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> Thanks. Don't sound too bitter about it, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this leads perfectly into to one of our other questions. Is And this came from Charlie Burke, of course, ex-Hong Kong coach. And it, it's something that we're going to try and use across all the the podcast when we have guests on if there's one law in cricket that you want changed Andrew what would you like to see changed in, in the laws of cricket I mean Peter, Peter De La Pena you know, covered the Mancad debate quite adequately on on the, on the podcast the other week so I'm not going to go over that as well um, I'm going to I'm going to cheat a bit and, and choose two um, one get rid of the spirit of cricket preamble mm. um, completely um, just replace it. Just replace it with an instruction to you know, don't be a dick. <laughs> um, that I think that'll. <laughs> I can get around that. Well, that's that's kind of covered by uh, fair and unfair play, wouldn't it be? Anyway. Well, yeah, it is. Um, but um, the other the other change I'd make is, and this is nothing to do with status or anything like that. But um, overthrows should not count towards the batsman or against the bowler. Hmm. Interesting. They should count as extras the same as buys. Well, my, my change was to not allow it if it, it deflected off the stumps, the batter or, or, or the umpire. Would you still have that? Or would you, and then you'd have uh, overthrows only if it didn't touch anything and it just went through the field? Or are you happy with the way it is because you won the World Cup? Uh, I think, yeah, deflecting off the bat or off the, off, off the batsman or the umpire, I think that's a dead ball. I think deflecting off the stumps or deflecting off another fielder, I think is it should, it should stay alive. Mm. I don't, I don't, I, that's, 
mostly because I think deflecting off the stumps mostly because there's, there's a part of me that wants to bring double players into cricket <laughs> so you can run out to both batsmen on the same player um, or you know a catch and a run out as well would be would be fun uh, so that's part of, part of you know, obviously if the ball was dead when it hit the stumps that you, you would be able to do that so that's another rule I'd change that allow you to have a double player well we can still be live but just have no further runs scored off it like the old no balls when the first run run after the no ball didn't count so nobody wouldn't run but it was still live so we'll count okay we'll say there are no runs off the stumps this is what will change for both of us so we're both happy there are no no further runs can be scored after the ball deflects off the stumps but it can still be there can still be another dismissal if there's a chance for a double play two run outs now that'd be good <laughs> yeah I mean, it changes the, 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 that thing where both batsmen end up at the same end uh, and they have to decide who, who was actually was out well you're just both out <laughs> oh, yeah. um, just, just dismiss them both you've both you've both you've both you're completely screwed things up so yeah you're both out yeah exactly you both deserve to leave <laughs> you've both been voted off the island so there'd be no one yeah you wouldn't be able to try and save yourself because if you're trying to save yourself by going back one of you needs to go back the other end yeah <laughs> that's great well it's been uh, a pleasure to have you on uh, andrew nixon one of our first ever patrons and and one of the the most upstanding and, and vocal associate cricket fans uh in the world certainly on twitter so uh it's it's been a huge pleasure mate thank you thank you for coming on for our 50th show oh you're welcome you see it's been a great pleasure and i've, I've been listening since the beginning so I, I won't have to listen to this one because I've already heard it. So, <laughs> so you you've brought up the fifty with us then? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's my first ever fifty. I'm I'm delighted. <laughs> um. A huge thank you again to Andrew Nixon for joining us, and a massive thank you to you guys wherever you are around the world for being a part of our fifty episodes. It's been a great ride so far. A final word before we round out today, and it's a shout out to some of our new patrons who have joined up in this brave new world we're in. A huge huge thank you to you guys as well, Melfouche. Will Glenwright, who's done some great stuff for global development in the ICC. Jim Congdon, the Jersey connoisseur. Matt Davis. Max Abbott, who's come off a great campaign with the T20 Women's World Cup and surely working hard with the Men's World Cup, hopefully still around the corner. And Nicholas Porter-Chung, once again, thank you so much, guys, for following our content. Now, if you haven't signed up yet, we'll be taking this time to do some more longer format stuff. So if you would like our bonus chat with Andrew Nixon, make sure to sign up with plans starting from as little as $2 a month. Some great extra stuff with Peter Della as well in recent weeks and a complete backlog of all of our stuff so far you can access. To keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on your favourite social media platforms and make sure to give us a five-star rating. But for now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.